Welcome everyone to Creating a Family. Talk about adoption and foster care. I'm Dawn Davenport, your host, as well as the director of Creating a Family. And today we're going to be talking about evaluating risk factors in domestic infant adoption with Dr. Dana Johnson. He is a professor of pediatrics at the University of Minnesota, where he co-founded the Adoption Medicine Program in 1986. Over the course of his career, he has reviewed the medical records of over 20,000 children and counseled potential adoptive parents on the likely medical needs of these adoptees. He is a dad by both birth and adoption. Welcome, Dr. Johnson, to Creating a Family, or I should say, welcome back. You have, uh, we have talked before, so welcome to Creating a Family. Thank you so much, Don. It's just wonderful to be with you again. Today, we're going to be talking about evaluating risk factors common to domestic infant adoption. So I've, uh, I've broken this down into the common risk factors that we see, and we'll just talk about them one by one. Let's start uh, with lack of prenatal care. That is often something that we see with expectant moms. So why expectant moms who are considering making an adoption plan? So why do expectant moms uh, who are thinking about adoption often have limited prenatal care? Well, I think some of it may be due to the fact that they are um, often don't have health care benefits. Um, they are either employed in an occupation which doesn't offer them or um, they're unemployed. Uh, and I think uh, many don't understand that most states have programs uh, to offer prenatal care uh, for free to pregnant women um, within their states. Um, I think the other couple of issues include that uh, they may not want to acknowledge the fact that they are pregnant. This is particularly true in uh, young, younger girls who don't want to confront their mother with an unexplained uh, pregnancy. Um, and maybe some people just want to put it off as long as they uh, can without acknowledging it. So they often come into prenatal care at a later date. And also uh, for women who are drug and alcohol dependent, life is just so disorganized that uh, it just may be too difficult to seek out prenatal care um, with the addictions that they have. So what is covered in typical prenatal care and how might a lack of prenatal care impact the baby? Well, when uh, a physician uh, or uh, other health professional approaches um, a pregnant woman, they have to realize, and they do realize that they're taking care of two individuals. They wanna make sure the mother is healthy and has a normal pregnancy, and they wanna make sure that the baby uh, is also doing well. So in terms of the mother's health, they want to look at underlying conditions. Does the mother have diabetes? Does she have high blood pressure to start with? Uh, what is uh, mother's nutrition? Um, they want to counsel her on avoiding drugs and alcohol and other uh, substances that might affect the baby. Uh, they want to make sure her mental health uh, is okay. Um, is she safe at her home? Um, and they want to make sure that the mother remains healthy. So they do ongoing regular checks to make sure blood pressure is okay, there's no protein in the urine, weight gain is not too much or too little, uh, blood sugar is not too high, um, and look at the underlying issues of adversity, uh, which will increase risk aside from the economic status of, of individuals. For instance, we know, uh, particularly in, in, the, in the card era, that uh, women who are black, despite being well off uh, and of upper economic status, will still share um, some of the uh, 
uh, high-risk pregnancy issues that uh, women of lower uh, economic status have simply because of long-term um, racism and adversity due to that. In terms of the infant's health, uh, you want to make sure the baby is growing normally, the baby's not too large or too small. Are there any um, obvious congenital malformations? So a, a regular ultrasound is done to make sure everything is, is going well. And there are other monitoring techniques. If there's any question about whether the baby's doing well, there are ultrasound techniques that allow um, a healthcare professional to assess the well-being of the baby in utero uh, and also external uh, fetal monitoring uh, can do that as well. So there's lots that can be done to make sure the mom is doing well and to make sure that the baby is growing and developing normally. All right, another common risk factor in domestic infant adoption is prematurity. What causes a premature birth? Well, there are, there are many causes that we know are associated with delivering babies prematurely. Um, so we can look at um, a very common thing, which is that uh, multiples, twins, triplets, uh, quadruplets, um, often deliver early because the uterus gets very, very large from having more than one occupant. And the larger the uterus is, the more likely they are to go into preterm labor. Um, we can also have abnormalities in anatomy. Uh, sometimes the uterus is smaller because it's split in two. That can lead to preterm delivery or other, other times we see the the exit to the uterus or the cervix uh, be um, lax or weak, and that can lead to premature cervical dilatation and uh, premature delivery. Uh, we often have maternal illness that can be a factor. Uh, diabetes uh, can threaten the mom's life, hypertension, uh, the development of a disorder called preeclampsia or eclampsia, uh, which is associated with high blood pressure and protein in the urine can also uh, impact the mother's health and threaten her life. And sometimes premature delivery is necessary to, to save the mom's life in that kind of a situation. We also know that infections of the membranes surrounding the baby or the amniotic fluid can also initiate early uh, delivery. Um, we also know that uh, certain drugs, uh, particularly things like vasoactive drugs like methamphetamine and cocaine, uh, can also lead to uh, earlier delivery, and opiates can as well because of the lifestyle, uh, lack of prenatal care, poor nutrition, etc., that goes along with the use of these of these drugs. And also, very young women, less than 17, or older women, older than 35, uh, will have a uh, higher chance of delivering prematurely. So, what are the risks with a premature birth based on the degree of prematurity? Well, I think that um, you can sum it up by saying that the earlier the baby is born or the smaller the baby is born uh, correlates very nicely with risk factors. So uh, a term baby is any baby beyond 37 weeks up to 42 weeks, and that's where we have our standard developmental outcomes. Late preterm babies between 34 weeks and 37 weeks will have slightly increased risk, but generally do uh, almost as well as full-term babies do. Uh, below 34 weeks, um, we have a higher risk, and then below 26 weeks, we have a much higher risk of, of long-term problems. And the same with less than 1,000 grams, lots of risk, less than 1,500 grams, um, somewhat of a risk, 
uh, less than 2,500 grams, about five and a half pounds, somewhat increased risk. When you talk about risk, what do you mean? So we're talking about a small early baby. Yeah, what are the risks uh, for that baby long-term? Well, there are, a lot of, there, are a lot of, there are a lot of risks that we can, we can talk about in, in neonatology, and this is what I do for a living, so I'm very familiar with these issues. Um, you know, some babies are born and escape totally unscathed. They're absolutely normal kids with none of the complications that we see with prematurity. But there are other babies that seem to, to bite off a bigger chunk of the problems that we see with, with prematurity and have lots of different issues. So the, the, the range of issues include, and again, um, the risk of these goes up as the baby gets smaller and earlier in gestation. Uh, interventricular hemorrhage, this is bleeding uh, on the inside of the brain that fills up the fluid-filled areas. This can cause hydrocephalus or water on the brain, uh, requiring a shunt, or it can actually damage uh, parts of the brain, uh, the motor tracts uh, surrounding the ventricles. We have a vasoproliferative disease uh, on the eyes called retinopathy of prematurity. It can lead to diminished vision or blindness. Uh, we can see delayed motor development uh, and cerebral palsy is one of the conditions that we see with that. Chronic lung disease and asthma uh, also uh, occur, a higher increase of, of hearing problems. And then we see the signs of early brain damage or maldevelopment can occur in any child who uh, experiences adversity in early life while their brain is doing uh, most of its uh, active development. And these can include cognitive impairment, learning disabilities, emotional and behavioral problems, attention problems, and even autism. And finally, we can see growth restriction. These kids can re remain small uh, for a longer period of time. However, I would add uh, to this uh, long list of, of potential problems, uh, when we look at the studies, um, what we see is that as time passes, some of these issues get less and less important. And in fact, when you look out 10 or 20 years after a premature baby is born, the thing that seems to be the most consistent in the studies is that the quality of the family that the kids go into, how much attention, how much health care, how much love and nurture these kids get is the most important factor in terms of a development. So when I talk to parents who are adopting preterm babies, I always emphasize that they really do have a major role to play in the outcome of these infants. This is not a fixed in stone kind of problem that we see in these kids. Yes, they do have issues. It's more uh, common to see longer term issues in very small babies or very premature babies. But the fact that they can provide love and attention to these kids makes a huge difference in their outcome. Excellent. Let me pause and remind folks that this show is underwritten by the Jockey Being Family Foundation. Since 2005, Jockey Being Family has been a leader in providing post-adoption support to strengthen adoptive families for successful futures. Jockey Being Family connects adoptive parents and children with education and resources to help prevent failed adoptions. They believe one failed adoption is one too many. You can connect with Jockey Being Family on their social media platforms at Facebook and Instagram, where they go by at Jockey Being Family. All right, another risk factor, one that we do talk about a fair amount, is prenatal exposure. 
I have divided prenatal exposure into, we're gonna, so we're going to talk in this order, alcohol, opiates, and then a list of other uh, substances that can be abused during pregnancy. Let's start with alcohol. What are some of the, first of all, let's say, what are some of the red flags that a mom might have abused alcohol during her pregnancy? Because often for an adoptive parent, we don't, adoptive parents or pre-adoptive parents don't know. So what are some of the red flags? Well, you're right, Don. It's, it's often very difficult to determine whether or not uh, moms have used alcohol or other, other types of drugs during the pregnancy. But I think we can look at uh, what's called the five P's, which is finding out whether her parents had problems, whether her peers have any problems with substance abuse, and this can go, can go for anything, like uh, not just alcohol, uh, whether their partner has had problems with substance abuse, whether there have been past difficulties in the mom's life due to substance uh, abuse, and whether or not they've used it during the past month. So when, when we talk to moms who were wondering whether they're, whether they're using substances, and we do this for, for every mom during their uh, first prenatal visit, we don't ask them if they use drugs or alcohol. That's often pejorative. People know that they shouldn't be doing that, so they, they often protect themselves and, and don't acknowledge that. Just be very forthright and, and, and say, how much alcohol have you used over the last month? Because people do drink. And they're probably going to be more likely to be forthright if you just phrase it in, in that kind of a fashion. You want to know how much, the type of alcohol they're using, um, and uh, how often they're using it. So those are the questions that you would ask. All right. Does the degree of impact differ depending on when in the pregnancy alcohol was consumed? And we should also discuss the quantity. And I, I I know that we, we say, and, and of course it is true, that there is no known safe amount of alcohol, but does the degree of impact differ depending on how much alcohol is consumed and when in the pregnancy? The opinion of most healthcare professionals at this time is that, again, like you said, there's no safe amount of alcohol to use and there is no safe period of pregnancy uh, in which to use alcohol. The effects may be different. So for instance, the full facial features of fetal alcohol syndrome um, usually occur if mothers use uh, alcohol in the first trimester during pregnancy. However, um, brain growth occurs throughout the pregnancy, body growth occurs throughout the pregnancy, and these can all be affected by alcohol irrespective of when moms may use it during the pregnancy. So what are some of the, let's say, short-term and long-term impacts of alcohol consumption throughout the pregnancy? Well, first of all, fetal alcohol syndrome or fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, you can, you can see abnormal facial features, and these include a um, thin and flat upper lip, an absence of a philtrum, which is that groove between the base of the nose and the upper lip, and small eyes. Uh, they can have a smaller head size, they can have low body weight, they can be short. And in the newborn period, they can have sleep disorders um, through the first year of life. Um, the, the, most of the cognitive problems that we see in, in alcohol-exposed children begin to show up as they get into school-age years. And we can have hyperactive behavior, poor coordination, poor memory, difficulty in school, especially with reading and math, 
other learning disabilities, speech and language delays, low IQ, uh, and poor executive function, which includes reasoning and judgment. There's not a lot to identify a child in the newborn period, uh, oftentimes who have been alcohol exposed. Sometimes you can pick out kids with full facial features of fetal alcohol syndrome, but the facial features are much more prominent when kids get to be a year and a half to three years of age, uh, when they become much more classic, and when kids start having school, school problems later on. And I think it's also important for parents to realize that the, facial, the absence of the facial stigmata of or the facial features associated with uh, alcohol exposure are not indicative of the fact that if, if the child does not have the facial features, it does not mean that the child has not been impacted. No, that's absolutely true. And we tell that to families all the time when we look at the facial photographs and say, well, it looks like uh, the facial features look, look uh, within the normal range, but we cannot tell you how the brain has been affected. Mm -hmm. Let me say that there are various resources available to learn more. Uh, creating a Family has a lot of resources specific to alcohol exposure that you can learn more about how children and, and adults along the fetal alcohol spectrum disorder uh, learn and, and function. So that would refer you, we have a number of courses on that as well. All right, another substance that we certainly are hearing a lot about is opioids. And let me just list a number of opioid drugs because I think sometimes we don't always know what these uh, opioids are. Codeine, hydrocodone, which Vicodin is, is an example, morphine, uh, oxycodone, which uh, oxycotton and Percocet are examples of, uh, hydromorphone uh, uh, is, an, is another one, heroin, methadone and suboxone, uh, fentanyl. Uh, so all of these are opiate drugs. Have I, did I leave out any obvious ones, Dr. Johnson? No, no, those are, those, that's a good, good list. Okay. <laughs> good. Well, or a bad list as the case might bad be, but list, anyway, exactly. yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. So let's talk about opioid exposure. Does the degree of impact differ depending on when in the pregnancy the opioid was used and, and the quantity uh, is, is, you know, taking one pill uh, the same as, as routine exposure or taking, uh, being hitting, hitting up once, depending if it's legal or illegal drugs you're talking about. So let's talk about timing and quantity. Well, certainly um, low amounts of opioid use during pregnancy uh, prescribed for pain is probably not going to affect the baby very much. Um, however, uh, chronic usage especially if it's close to the time of delivery, uh, will certainly predispose a child for opiate withdrawal syndrome. Let me, let me, let me break it into two categories. Okay. So there's, there's long-term effects of, of opioids or any other uh, illicit drug. And, and we don't know when in the pregnancy um, those effects may occur. What I would say is it, it, the general rule of thumb is if, if, it's, a, if it's a small amount of usage, strictly regulated by a physician of a, of a legal usage of an opioid uh, during pregnancy, it's very unlikely, especially if there's a good rearing environment for the child, to cause long-term mental problems or behavioral problems. However, um, what, what the other thing that we see and we know what happens is this whole issue of withdrawal of opioids mm -hmm. that has placed so many children uh, in 
medical care units after birth and in foster care after birth. We know that uh, chronic usage of, of opioids during the pregnancy, especially if that usage is close to the time of delivery, we know that that can cause um, opiate withdrawal syndrome. And that's uh, when we see the neonatal abstinence syndrome uh, due to the withdrawal of the, of the medication after, after delivery. I think a common belief in our society generally, but also pre-adoptive parents, is that if a child is not born dependent or, being, or with a diagnosis of neonatal abstinence syndrome, NAS, that means that the long-term impacts will not be there. That being born addicted is an indicator that the child, or born dependent is an indicator that the child will have more impact and being born without being dependent means the child will not be significantly impacted. Is that true? Well, you know, I think it depends on the drug because, because some of the illicit drugs, not the opioids necessarily, but for instance, cocaine and methamphetamine really don't have a lot of problems in the neonatal period. What I would say about opioids, where we do see more problems in the neonatal period, is that if usage was small enough that they don't exhibit withdrawal, then we know that, that uh, certainly the usage close to um, delivery has not been greater, and those kids may not have as much of a risk, but we really don't know that. You know, we have not done the long-term studies to show whether or not opioids uh, taken early in pregnancy or in the middle of pregnancy and then discontinued are safe and don't have any effects over the long-term uh, in babies. So I would say that if a baby has not exhibited withdrawal, you know, that's a good sign. Uh, but I would not be uh, sanguine about it. I would, I would watch those kids very carefully if we know that they've been exposed to opiates uh, in utero, just to make sure that we identify any issues early and can intervene at an earlier stage. So of the opioids that we have mentioned, we're gonna talk about the other drugs here in just a sec. But of the opioids, is there a difference in impact that you see depending on the drug that was involved or whether it was a legal or illegal drug? Well, certainly the drug has an effect. I mean, there were very, very, uh, there's, there's a wide range in how powerful opiates are. So on that list of yours, codeine would be a pretty weak drug um, and, and one we would not see a lot of effects for. However, Fentanyl, which is an enormously potent drug, um, we might see more of an effect. So yes, it does make a difference what the mother uh, was using. Um, again, we don't know the long-term effects necessarily, but certainly the effects um, on the baby in terms of withdrawal will be more severe, the more powerful the opiate will be. So the second part of your question, oh, the, whether it was licit or prescribed, mm -hmm. Um, well, there are some drugs um, that, uh, you know, can't be prescribed, such as heroin, which is a very powerful mm -hmm. opiate. Um, but, you know, there are very, very powerful opiates that can be prescribed, um, such as the oxycodone group. And uh, those can be used legally or they can be used illegally, too. Mm -hmm. So the effects are going to be the same. If they're abused, not taken under a physician's uh, guidance, it's probably more likely that those children are going to exhibit withdrawal effects. But um, the drug is a drug, whether it's uh, illicit or non-illicit, it can cause effects in the baby. 
Well, that raises the issue of medical treatment for uh, addiction disease using methadone or Suboxone. Yes. And we see that, we see a lot of concern for a, a mom uh, has been seeking treatment. She is following the protocol. So how does methadone and or Suboxone impact a fetus or a baby after birth? Well, again, we're not sure about the long-term effects. If you look at the, uh, the literature, um, most of the studies are very short-term. They involve relatively small groups of individuals, and they may not have appropriately uh, taken um, care of some of the other confounding variables, such as whether the mom you know, took care, good care of their child and provided nurturing care to them. So uh, what I would say is that, that there's a potential for long-term issues. And tell me again what the question was. Well, the, the, the mom will also have been most likely yes, taking yes, yes. Okay. the methadone and suboxone up through and uh, through delivery. So it is not unusual right. to see those children we're gonna, born. We're going to see those kids born and, and likely experience um, neonatal withdrawal syndrome. Mm -hmm. So we know that those kids require a lot of attention during the first few months of life. We want to make sure that they're nurtured. We want to make sure that their needs are attended to and that they are not um, physiologically compromised by having that uh, medication uh, withdrawn too quickly from their system. Mm -hmm. Those are the kids who we would follow very, very carefully uh, during the first year of life and make sure that they are in an early intervention program so that early effects can be noted and that these kids can go into occupational therapy, speech and language therapy. And those are the kids when they, if they're adopted that I would make sure that those children get a full neuropsychological evaluation before they get to, get to school, uh, simply to uh, find out what their areas of strength and weakness are. One thing to remember about programs, um, it's great be in a methadone program. Individuals in methadone programs are routinely screened for the use of other drugs. We know that they are uh, generally get a better chance of getting prenatal care and that their outcome is better uh, than if they are out randomly using drugs. But we also know that people in, uh, for instance, methadone programs have a high incidence of exposure to other agents. 75% of them smoke. So they're exposed to the nicotine, 40% use alcohol. So there's a chance of alcohol impact on the developing nervous system too. So all of these are reasons why these babies need to be monitored, not only in the newborn period, but over the course of time to make sure that if any problems occur, that we are able to get them into therapy earlier rather than later, because we know that the earlier intervention begins the more profoundly helpful it is to these kids. All right, you've mentioned earlier methamphetamines and cocaine. Yep. So what do we know? Those have, have we certainly have had more research uh, because they've been around yeah, longer, exactly. if for nothing else. Yeah, so what is the research showing for exposure to meth and, and, and cocaine in any of the forms that cocaine presents? Those who have been around a while, and that's both of us, <laughs> recognize the, uh, the big cocaine epidemic that occurred in the 70s and the 80s. And so consequently, um, studies looking at uh, the effect of, of cocaine exposure during pregnancy 
uh, began a fairly long period of time ago. So we have a long track record of following these kids. So one of the best studies was started in 1993. And we know that uh, in terms of low birth weight, um, uh, using cocaine during pregnancy is associated with about a one pound decrease in birth weight. They're delivered a little bit earlier, about a week. For the newborn, there really wasn't uh, very much withdrawal noted. There were some subtle effects, but probably nothing you would pick up unless you were doing a detailed scientific study. And actually the long-term effects of cocaine exposure, when you control for other, all the other variables that go into raising a child, diet, uh, whether there was drug use by the parents, uh, whether it was a nurturing environment, the socioeconomic status, all those factors factor into how the outcome is. When you control for those, the findings have been pretty inconsistent and quite subtle in terms of the effect of cocaine alone. And those fall into the areas of, of subtle learning disabilities. So despite the fact that we were very, very concerned about cocaine, it didn't turn out to be as, as uh, potent as we initially thought. Now that's not to say that one should use cocaine because cocaine is associated with a lifestyle that, that does not predispose to um, a good developmental environment for a child. But if you're looking just at the drug, there wasn't very much effect. So in looking at things like methamphetamine, which came after cocaine, those studies started in 2002. We have, we have a fairly good long-term data from, from that particular study. Birth weights affected a little bit, about 200 grams, so about half a pound. Uh, earlier delivery, a little bit more than a week. Again, with newborns, not really any abstinence syndrome, as we would see with, with opioids. And in terms of, of long-term, we don't have really, you know, decades of data about that, but at least at one, two, and three years, there's no difference in mental development. Um, so, you know, the effects of cocaine and, and uh, methamphetamine are more likely to occur during the actual pregnancy. And we can see, these are very vasoactive uh, compounds, we can see abruption, um, which is uh, deta early detachment of the placenta. We can see infarcts in the brain in those individuals. So they can be major effects. Um, but um, in terms of long-term effects, if a, if a fetus emerges unscathed, it doesn't seem to have a long-term um, effect. What about marijuana? Now that so many more states have legalized marijuana, I would assume we are seeing more pregnant women using marijuana. What do we know about the impact on the fetus and the baby from a mom smoking uh, marijuana during her pregnancy? Well, again, um, one of the problems is that we do not have very, very long-term studies on, on marijuana exposure during pregnancy. And I would agree with you, this is a huge problem. Um, in my practice, um, we have a very high percentage of our, of our moms uh, that are using uh, marijuana during their pregnancy and even using marijuana while they're breastfeeding their babies after pregnancy. So this is, this is a, going to be a, a major issue for us to face in the future and what we need are, are better studies. The studies to date don't show very much effect. That's not to say that we're not going to see longer term effects. These are very potent molecules. And we know that it affects us as individuals if we choose to smoke marijuana. And it's, it's I think, silly to think that it may not affect babies at all, simply because we don't have the data 
uh, early uh, in life. So I would not advise smoking marijuana, but we don't have any data at present to show long-term effects. And what about hallucinogens like ecstasy and others? Uh, do we know anything about how they might impact the fetus and or baby? Well, the data on ecstasy is, is limited as well. Um, right now, we don't see very much difference in the newborn period. For instance, uh, we don't see an, a withdrawal uh, type of behavior uh, with ecstasy. Um, there are some subtle effects uh, that have been described, poor motor quality and lower milestone attainment in the first months uh, of, of life. Uh, and that seems to be dose uh, dependent. Uh, the harder, higher the dose, uh, the more potent that seems to be. And fine in, in gross motor delays in the first couple of years of life, but we really do need more follow-up studies uh, to know what happens uh, mm -hmm. to these kids over the long period of time. And I, and I would add, when you're looking at, at follow-up studies of uh, anything, this includes prematurity, this includes uh, drug exposure, this includes alcohol exposure. These are very difficult studies to do. There are a lot of small studies. There are a lot of studies that are published because they show an effect, but they may not have been very well done. What you want is long-term prospective studies where they enroll the child at the time of delivery, they follow these kids on a regular basis, and they also follow the other factors in that child's environment that can impact development. Mm -hmm. And those right. are very, very difficult and expensive studies to do. Uh, but those are the ones that really tell us uh, what happens. Yeah. And from an adoptive parent standpoint, one of the things that, that they are most curious about is have, how do we separate the impact from a child being raised in a, an environment where parents are still abusing drugs? versus children who are removed from that environment. And, and it could also be because the parents got clean. So they then maybe, the family is higher functioning, but it could also be that the child is removed because they are placed for adoption. Yes. So from an adoptive parent standpoint, that's of great interest because that would be the scenario that they're considering, exactly. of course, is that the child would not be in an abuse in a, in a family that is still abusing drugs. Well, and, and this is what I come back to and why I like working with, with adoption so much is because the adoptive family, you know, the commitment of adoptive parents, whether they're adopting from abroad or whether they're adopting domestically or whether they're adopting from foster care, um, is it, so extraordinary that, you know, this is the ideal situation um, for, for most kids to go into because they get the love and attention they need. Uh, parents uh, are devoted to their kids and they provide the environment that is, is optimal for a child who may have risk factors uh, in which to develop. So I tell adoptive parents that, you know, going into a functional nurturing environment never hurts a child. It almost always benefits. It doesn't help everything. Mm -hmm. um, there are some things that don't seem to be affected by nurture, uh, but there are other things um, that affect, are affected hugely um, by a nurturing environment. So a child will always be better off um, being raised in a nurturing environment, whether in a birth family or whether in an adoptive family. And what I tell adoptive families, uh, because almost every child has a risk factor now when they go into an adoptive family, all children basically are special needs now, 
is that they have an enormous effect on the outcome of their children and that uh, the outcome is probably going to be better than many of the literature studies would suggest because most of those studies were done when those children remained within their birth family where they did not necessarily have the optimal uh, opportunity to, to develop in a good environment. All right. This show is brought to you by the support of our partner agencies. And these are agencies that believe in our mission of providing pre and post adoption education, training and support for families uh, and, and for the professionals who support these families. One of these partners is Adoptions from the Heart. They were founded by an adoptee and they are celebrating 35 years of bringing families together through adoption. They're a full-service domestic infant adoption agency specializing in open adoptions. You can see adoptive parents and birth parents share their stories on their Adoptions from the Heart TV, AFTH TV, which airs Tuesday mornings. You can follow them, Adoptions from the Heart, on Facebook and YouTube to catch every episode. And we also have Children's Connection. They're an adoption agency providing services for domestic infant adoption, as well as embryo donation and adoption throughout the U.S. They also provide home studies and post-adoption support to families in Texas. And we thank both of them for their support. All right, we've talked about prenatal exposures and, and uh, as being in prematurity and lack of prenatal care. But another risk factor that adoptive parents often face when deciding and evaluating a, a match is mental health issues. So what is the genetic connection for the following mental health disorders? Because as it often presents from an adoptive parent standpoint is they are a, a, a expectant mom has chosen them or the agency has matched them and they in the mom's history either her history or her parents history or her immediate family's history there is evidence of a mental health diagnosis so how heritable are the following mental illnesses let's start with anxiety disorders which would include panic disorders obsessive compulsive disorders phobias and things like that let me step back a little bit and, and talk about the whole issue sure. of, of uh, mental illness in the, in the family's history. Um, first of all, and, and we see this more uh, of a problem um, in international adoptions where a diagnosis comes across that the mother had schizophrenia. But yet we know that the psychiatric um, diagnostic capabilities within that particular country are not necessarily the best. That's not such an issue here in the United States um, where we have better mental health. But still, I think when, when you see that information within a, uh, a referral uh, that uh, the mother or other relatives uh, uh, may have a mental health diagnosis, I think you all always have to ask, hmm, you know, is, is, is that really true? And, and try and find out as much about that as possible. Certainly, certainly people can, mental illness is, is, is very common. You know, 20% of people will have a mental health diagnosis. But uh, oftentimes, uh, people impose mental health diagnoses indiscriminately on people simply because of their behavior or their lifestyle. Mm -hmm. and, and therefore, I think, I think you always have to look at that diagnosis and say, how was that diagnosis made? Is that diagnosis true? Is this something that I, that I worry about in, in terms of inheritability? Second of all, 
we've learned over the last 20 years that not only is there a genetic predisposition uh, for a mental illness, but that genetic predisposition works alongside of the environment in which the child is raised to lead to the development of, of full mental illness. So for instance, there have been several genes that have been uh, associated with depression in, in adult life. But we know that uh, some of those genes are activated by early experience. So if a child grows up under adverse conditions, those genes are much more likely to be expressed. But if, you, if that child grows up in, a, in under conditions of, of nurture, the, the, the likelihood of depression is, is much, much less. So you always have to consider, again, what that child is going to be going into, the environment that they're going to be going into. So you may have a child whose, whose parents uh, have been severely depressed, who you may be wondering whether or not is that child gonna grow up and, and have depression. Well, if that child enters your family as an infant, you are gonna provide protective factors for that child so that they're much less likely to become depressed. However, if that child comes into your family when they are seven or eight, after, after been, being in foster care with multiple placements, enduring uh, child abuse or neglect, that child is much more likely to have expression of that uh, gene uh, mm -hmm. later on in life. Mm -hmm. So it, it's, it's a complicated issue to look at how likely a um, specific mental illness is going to uh, occur within in, a, in a, the context of adoption. Well, and, and let me let me throw one other factor in there that I, I don't think you mentioned, and that is it goes back to the same issue we were talking about when we were talking about drug abuse. If a child is raised by a parent with anxiety disorders or depression yes. or schizophrenia, that impacts the child and changes obviously changes the environment exactly. and, and makes it more likely that the gene will be expressed as well. And, and since you're removing the child from that, if, you're, if the child's being placed for adoption, then that also right. it has to be factored right. in. Now, there have been, you know, in terms of looking at the genetics of, of mental illness, adoption studies have been, have been very important in, in, in trying to figure this out. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, the whole 12 studies. As well as twin exactly. studies, I'll throw that out there. Yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely fascinated by the heritability of, of, of many features, including right. mental, uh, mental illness. And, and twin studies and adoption studies have been right. very so, important. So for instance, looking at, at you know, the major affective disorders like, like schizophrenia and, and bipolar disorders, you know, if you're an identical twin uh, in, and one of your twin, your twin has schizophrenia, you got about a 50% chance of having it. Now that's a high percentage, but it's not 100%. So environment has something to do with that. With, with bipolar disorder, you got about a 70% chance if your twin has it. Uh, so it has some environmental, but it seems to have a stronger uh, component. If you have, um, so if, if you are adopted out of that environment, the best studies that have been done have been, have been done in schizophrenic families. So if you have a mother who's schizophrenic, your chances of having being schizophrenic is about 15%. And bipolar disorder, it's about the same, it's about 20%. Now, there have been studies that have taken infants or looked at infants who have been placed by mothers with a diagnosis of schizophrenia into families 
both who have parents who, who might uh, have schizophrenic type of, of disorders and in normal families. Now the best, you know, these are again, difficult studies to do. You need a lot of individuals with yeah. schizophrenia because not very many places for adoptions. You've got to have very, very long uh, follow-up period. So you're going to find variability in, 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 in some of the studies that are out there that say that, well, it doesn't really help and some it does help. The best one that I saw came from Finland. They have a national health service. They can follow these records for many, many years and they've done this. They looked at uh, mothers who were schizophrenic that had a, a, a real diagnosis, you know, done according to good psychiatric practice and placed, um, you know, their infants into families. The, the, the adoptive families were looked at to see if they had high-risk behaviors that would be consistent with schizophrenia. So what they found was that the highest risk was if you had a genetic predisposition and if you grew up in a family where one of the parents was schizophrenic. So, but if you, if you had the hered hereditary factors that would predispose you to schizophrenia and you went to a family that was normal, the, the risk of schizophrenia was, was decreased. So the environment does help. So again, I would say with any mental health disorder, and again, we don't have long-term studies that would verify this, but I, th I think it's pretty consistent with what we already know, is that if a parent has a mental illness and that child is adopted at an early age, goes into a family, raised in a normal family without being exposed to mental illness, those children are gonna have less of a chance of developing that particular mental illness than a child who grows up in their birth family parented by a family who has that disorder. So again, adoptive families can have a beneficial effect on this. Now, that's not to say you ignore it. You can't adopt a child whose mother was a known schizophrenic and say, my child's never gonna develop schizophrenia. You have to be very careful, especially during adolescence, to look for the signs that there might be mental illness, get that child treat, treated early. There are effective treatments that dramatically help individuals with, with schizophrenia function in society and live productive lives. And those are some things you have to bear, keep in the back of your mind that that's a risk. You know, it's a risk with so many other things that, mm -hmm. that we know about. But again, the optimal environment of adoptive families can help uh, in that kind of a situation. And, and another thing that we sometimes see is not the parent, the birth parents who have the mental, mental illness diagnosis, but a grandparent, uh, the, the, the birth mom or birth dad's parent. I, and we, are we correct to assume that the further away, if the, if the parent themselves, now keeping in mind that the birth parent might be young enough and the, the mental illness has not been diagnosed, but it's the further away, the further back in the in the family tree, the less likely the percentage. You know, we've already said the percentage is not as high as you might think, fifteen to twenty percent for some of them, uh, and that's that's just in general, and even less if the the child has been raised in an environment that does not that is not uh, that is more supportive uh, for getting early yes. diagnosis and treatment. So it, the further yes. away, does that also even further reduce the possibility? The further away you are, you see dramatic reduction. Okay. So for instance, a grandparent would be a second degree relative. 
3% and 5% for, for schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. Okay. So it, it really is, you know, getting down close to what the, what the risk would be in the general population. Right. Um, and let's talk about uh, ADHD, uh, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Uh, while you could debate whether that's a mental health uh, disorder, it is a condition and it is a heritable condition. So how, how, how much do genes impact ADHD and how much does environment? And we, of course, know that both work together. Well, there, there, there is an association, but again, it's one of those multifactorial things that, that's kind of hard to tease out when you're talking about a, a specific individual. But when you, when you look at, for instance, a diagnosis of ADHD in, in a parent, there are so many things besides genetics that can lead to attention problems. You know, any insult in, the, in, the, in early life, you know, adversity causes uh, attention problems uh, in kids. The other thing is that you know anxiety can cause uh, symptoms that are that are often interpreted as being ADHD. So you know it's I think it's at least for me very very hard to say very much about um, whether or not uh, a parent who is diagnosed with ADHD because it's such a common diagnosis these days yeah. is going to have a high risk. You know whether that child is going to be high risk. Again, I would tell families. Good nurture is probably going to help. Again, um, if you see any symptoms that might indicate a, a child has attention problems, you know, have that child evaluated and have that child um, taken care of. You know, many of our kids with sensory processing problems um, are diagnosed as attention problems. And, you know, it's, it's a very, very heterogeneous causation uh, for things that turn out to be attention issues. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and as you point out, it's a very common diagnosis right now as well. Right, right. right. The last risk factor uh, I want to talk about is legal risk factor. And I'm going to talk about that uh, probably more in, in, in my wheelhouse here. Sure. Uh, most often in domestic infant adoption, when we talk about legal risk factors, we are talking about unknown or unidentified birth fathers. Uh, each state handles unidentified or unknown birth fathers in a different way. It is a risk factor and you need to work with your adoption agency or your adoption attorney to discuss this uh, and understand how much of a risk factor it is and what you can do about it and how you can work to help identify who the birth father is. It is a risk factor, but it is something that you need to work with your professional to understand more. Well, Dr. Dana Johnson, thank you so much for talking with us today about evaluating risk factors in domestic infant adoption. Let me remind everyone that the views expressed in this show are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the position of creating a family, our partners, or our underwriters. Also, keep in mind that the information given in this interview is general advice. To understand how it applies to your specific situation, you need to work with your adoption professional. Thank you for joining us today, and I will see you next week.